Okay, today I have with me Dr. Virginia Arbery, who's a, a great expert on Plato and the Republic, as well as another uh, work that we'll be discussing, the Federalist Papers. Um, and I've asked Dr. Virginia to join me today because as I was teaching book five of the Republic last week, it occurred to me that the three waves, the three radical waves of reform that Socrates proposes there uh, strike us very often as being very unfamiliar uh, to us as modern American citizens. But there's also a strange way in which I think they should strike us as familiar. Uh, so to help me think through this um, and, and, and explore this line of questioning, I've invited Dr. Virginia to, to talk to me uh, about, talk with me about Plato and, and Publius, the author of the Federalist Papers. Um, so I'll, I'll begin by uh, asking Dr. Virginia to help us understand how Publius in the Federalist Papers, and especially in Federalist 10, uh, diverges from Socrates' impulse in, in Book 5 of the Republic, which is to emphasize the necessary unity, uh, total unity in all things of the best city. Um, Socrates goes so far in book five as to propose, for the sake of unity, to propose not only female guardians as well as male, male guardians, but also uh, kind of dissolution of the family, uh, the communism of women and, and children as it's known, uh, and then finally the, the rule of philosopher kings. And it's that second wave in particular where we, where we see his emphasis on unity. We can't have any other associations in the city other than the city, which might uh, break down loyalty to it. Um, what does Madison do in, in Federalist 10 by contrast? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Papadopoulos for letting me join in in these reflections. Um, I'm thrilled that freshmen are reading any part of the Federalist papers, first of all. But 10, of course, is the uh, one always pathologize because it's making a very important um, claim that in the ancient republics, in the former, uh, if you think, say, of Sparta, for instance, which you're, with which you students are familiar already, um, there's homogeneity. There is a common set of beliefs, of interests, of uh, opinions, and this homogeneity is also connected with a common way of life, such as farming and so forth. And so that considered as an ideal is specifically rejected as the basis for unity in Federalist 10. And if you've read it, you've probably noted that the argument is made that in fact it's unnatural <laughs> to have such unity. And he gives a very interesting explanation. It's not one that's rooted in the body, which is really important in book five of the Republic, but it's rooted in the mind and in opinions. And he makes the argument, if I recall it correctly, that in fact, when men have an opinion, they are attached to it, almost as if to say they are attached to it in the way a parent is to the child they have brought into being. You birth an idea and you become attached to it and, and you become 
as it were, passionate about it and that this is what's natural, not the homogeneity of opinion and belief and interests and way of life. And so that it would be a violation to think that you can, um, a violation of human nature to think that you can bring about homogeneity. It's just a recipe, in other words, you could say, for real faction because of the, you could argue the repression of those things which, which are natural to us, thinking in our own way. And of course, then he'll go on to talk about the preferable way of dealing with disunity, which is by controlling faction in an altogether different and unique way, which he claims the Americans um, have uh, in the pocket because they have this huge landscape which enlarges the orbit and increases diversity and, in and decreases the opportunity for actual conspiracy and unity of opinion. <laughs> so, so diverse and unequal uh, faculties are actually what are offered as a better um, endorsement both of human nature and a better control of faction. And there are a lot, there's a lot more nuance to this, um, but I mean, that's, at least that's one uh, beginning to, to talk about it, Dr. Papadopoulos, and you could refine it with more questions, if you will, because I know I've simplified it. <clears throat> no, yeah, that, that's great. The, right, as he says, the latent causes of faction are sown in the nature of man. So you would, yeah. you would have to, if the options are either uh, removing the causes of faction or controlling the effects, Madison says, to remove the causes, you would essentially have to denature man or, or yeah. Uh, yeah. suppress human nature in some uh, terribly distorting way that is either not going to be possible or not going to be uh, a, good, uh, a good bargain at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I guess, so yeah. couldn't someone say though that, that unity is not only, is both necessary and good for a political order? I mean, I think of when Socrates talks about the unity of pleasures and pains um, that, that should mm -hmm. be present in, in the best city. My immediate thought is um, September 11th and the fact that that's kind of the prominent example in, in my lifetime uh, of a kind of unity and a kind of unity that we should be proud of that mm -hmm. is, is apparent uh, when uh, a common threat is perceived. Um, we sort of set aside all of our differences and, and resolve to not only, not only to act in common against the threat, but we also feel the pain of the victims uh, of this attack, right, and, and so on. Um, isn't that both just a feature of what it means to be the me members of citizens of the same community and also a good thing, a, a kind of necessary condition for, for common action? Yeah, so in order to achieve the good of unity, which in your example is one of patriotism and common uh, cohort opinion based on who the enemy is here, uh, that, that good of unity is always a question of degree, isn't it? So the people that were all unified in objecting to the Twin Towers being hit weren't unified because they had sh shared uh, the gymnasium together, the locker room together, <laughs> or because they had exercised then together or then shared their women and children. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that happened in my generation in the 60s, but, but not <laughs> when you were around. <laughs> you said that all behind yeah, us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we, yeah, 
maybe learn from that. But, you know, the question of how much you give away the private in order to protect the public good, in order to have unity in the public sphere is, is a matter of real concern. I mean, if in fact the private has a natural call and uh, power over us, uh, if it in fact is um, absolutely part of our humanity, then, uh, then if the public demands a kind of, um, what, uh, cancellation of those natural private things such as one wife, one's own children, one's own things, that might be difficult. On the other hand, if the private becomes so important that tragedy becomes then then you then you've got a, a real problem and or if families are all so different and so divergent in their practices like say around here mormons you know not that long ago you yeah. know there might be real reasons to say well the private is going in a direction that is against the public good and yeah you know, so the whole question of education comes in here you know what do we want the private to inculcate in its young so that they are compatible and unified when there are threats and compatible and unified in times of peace as well. So yeah, these are matters of prudence, but it's the body, the domain, which you can give over to the public. I mean, that's the one thing that's our own. You know, I got my body, you got your body, our students have their, we, you know, these are really particular, mm -hmm. right? Um, we might have some unity of thought, but can we have unity of our bodies? It, it gets problematic, and so you yeah. have to ask, what is Plato up to? What is Plato up to? Yeah. Right. And this is one of those. Is this is that? one of those openings in the Republic where you have to wonder the. You have to think about yeah. the interpretive question: Is Socrates yeah. seriously proposing this, or or literally proposing this as what ought to be done, right. or is he showing? his interlocutors mm -hmm. and Plato showing us that despite mm -hmm. the fact that we have this impulse towards unity and can recognize uh, its benefits, uh, mm -hmm. nevertheless, to actually achieve that, we would have to forget our bodies and forget mm -hmm. ourselves. And so even though common action for the common good mm -hmm. is, is necessary and good and virtuous and admirable, uh, Nevertheless, there may have to be some limits on our expectations for commonality or community in politics. Um, and then you could then yeah, take that the interpretation in, I think you could take that, that interpretation in a couple of different directions. I've, I've spoken about this with my students a little bit. You could take that in a, in a modern, very yeah. broadly liberal direction. Uh, you could t actually take it in a, in a very specifically Christian direction as as a as an mm. indication of the limits of the human condition uh, in this life, and an anticipation mm. of of the community of heaven. Um, so yeah, there's a number yeah. of openings there that that kind of diverge from that point. Yeah, that that word openings, I think, is the right one. The, the openings are always vexed as well, depending on what direction you go. Um, mm. I, I'm thinking of a very uh, old-fashioned film that my family watched, um, St. Patrick's Day, which was The Quiet Man with John Wayne oh, and yeah, Maureen O'Hara. Have you seen that, Dr. Pumper? That's the, that's yeah. the right so day to watch this. That's terrific. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've got this marriage between an American who's, you know, used to freedoms and possibilities, and he falls in love with the gorgeous Maureen O'Hara, who's got a bully brother who won't give her her inheritance. And uh, John Wayne, of course, uh, doesn't understand why that's such a big deal, because he has plenty of money. And she wants not only her inheritance, but her furniture. She wants her things. You know, her home is important to her. And he just wants her, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> That'll do. Yeah. Drama. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The whole drama of this film it really is about, you know, what are you going to do with women in this uh I, the city in common, you know, what really, how are you going to overcome mm -hmm. women's nature? <laughs> you know, how are you going to do that in some uh, way that makes it possible for them not to take revenge? I mean, it's, it's right. gonna be, you know, you're going to end up with Lysistrata and, you know, sorry, buddy, I'm not uh -huh. yours until I have my things. <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Because one, one of the things that happens, the whole, the whole conversation in book five is, you know, begun with Adam Antis and, and, and Polemarchus saying, oh, are, are we going to let him yes. get away with not explaining this? We want to hear more. <laughs> right. Tell us, tell us all of the sort of sordid details about how this is going to work. And what, yeah, what Socrates winds up showing them is that actually in the city, uh, women will be equal to men uh, in, in many respects as guardians. And it will as much be a community of men as it will be a community mm -hmm. of women. He doesn't, he doesn't quite yeah. uh, put that in their faces, but it, it may sound less appealing to the, to the young men he's talking to if you phrase it that way than, than if you phrase it as, and then all the women are going to be in common. Yeah, well, and then there's also this little problem where, okay, we're equal apparently in our capacities. And, you know, it's just like bald men and right. men who have hair. The only difference is, you know, babies, you know, they can have babies and you can't, and, and the analogy is to baldness. And you look at that and you go, I don't think, it's so comic, it's so preposterous that when you read it, you have to be invited into this opening where you have to think about what are the limits of how much the city can ask of the private for the sake of public unity. And then, you know, and the bigger question for me, really, when I think about it, um, I'm sorry, I'm not going back to the Federalist Papers, but right. I was just so excited to read Plato again. <laughs> but I was thinking about um, arrows, because it's really about where you direct your arrows, right? I mean, that's partly what the big question is for him, mm -hmm. especially with somebody as spirited and full of arrows as Glaucon. Like, where are you going to direct that arrows? Mm -hmm. and is it going to be directed to your own or is it going to be directed to the city or is it and fame or is it going to be directed toward wisdom right mm -hmm. and and so there are all these levels that he is giving us an opening to think about and putting this preposterous proposal in front of us i think is 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 the opening that leads into this other deeper direction with the with the last wave the philosopher king Mm -hmm. and the education of the philosopher where you really have to think about the arrows the arrows for wisdom yeah i'm sorry about that phone we just got a phone yeah that, that's fine I'm, I'm sure there's i'm sure there's some dramatic significance to this my my uh my if this were a platonic dialogue that would that would tip us off to something in the argument um i don't know what exactly but i think that's very helpful what you just said that, that there's kind of 
different possibilities for where Glaucon's arrows can be mm -hmm. directed towards. And actually the way you sketched it out, I think you're right that that's kind of the movement of the Republic as a whole. He begins by asking uh, in book two, why shouldn't I just become a tyrant in, yeah. this, in this way? And in other words, why, shouldn't, what I want. Yeah. why shouldn't I just mm -hmm. follow this kind of desire for more uh, for myself? And then Socrates brings him through the city in speech to, to locate his, the object of his eros in, in this common project that they're constructing together, the city and, and the common good for the city. Mm -hmm. But I think, mm -hmm. yeah, it's right that Socrates himself doesn't see this city as, as fully satisfying, at least not until it's been transformed through the philosophic education that is, mm. is still to come in book five. And I don't want to give away too much mm. of, of the ending to, to the students who haven't read it before, but we're going to see by oh. the end of book nine, we're going to see mm. uh, Socrates describe uh, uh, mm. to Glaucon how he should be looking to um, uh, how he should be becoming a philosopher in, in essence. Uh, so he sort of moved him from being a tyrant to a citizen in this very radical unitary sense to being a philosopher mm. and, and having his mm. arrows attuned to, to wisdom. Um, it's good. So uh, Dr. Maybe, Papadopoulos. Yes. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no. Well, well, all I was going to say in response, uh, into, in response to that, uh, summary of the movement of the Republic. I think it's interesting that the hush, mm -hmm. if that's the right Greek word, that, that, that comes to Glaucon when he realizes that pleasure could be in the arrows for wisdom. And he says to Socrates later on, as you say, is this possible that there's pleasure, right? Yeah. So all those other pleasures, the hush is just so beautiful. It corresponds, it seems to me, with the blush of Thrasymachus, oh, who's good. you know shamed into seeing his own inconsistency. And really that blush of Thrasymachus had to happen to Glaucon after he works out all of his speculations in book two, yeah? Because mm -hmm. he sees, in fact, I mean, he has to come to see at any rate that having all those options for his own private desires is in fact not pleasurable. And <laughs> he has to come to see that. And that, that, that's hard yeah. to transform that kind of inclination to a pleasure in wisdom, you know? Mm -hmm. that, that, he, that's, and that's what's happening in the whole dialogue. And, and I think part of book five is, oh my gosh, I just think part of it is uh, testing the tyrannical soul of Glaucon. Hmm. Like, is this what you would really want? Is this what you want? Yeah, you get, you get to kiss anybody you want. You get all the pretty girls if you're the best warrior. By the way, the pretty girls don't get all the pretty boys they want, but it's only the boys that get the girls they want in the way that he describes the awards for military or public service. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, that kind of, that, that appeals to him is showing, is showing, I think, that he's not there yet. He's not where he should be. He's not... Mm -hmm at the point where he sees the pleasure of philosophy. Yeah. No, yeah, no. good. W would it feel to you like I'm, I'm dragging you back down into the cave if we started talking about uh, contemporary America as opposed to the Republic? 
Oh, I, I was fascinated by your inclination to do so, so please proceed. Okay, here, here we go, <laughs> compelling you back into the cave. Um, yeah, so it, it struck me that the extreme unitary measures that Socrates takes in, in book six um, should strike us as unfamiliar. And, and if anything, if we, if we think it's familiar, we'd, we'd distance ourselves from it. We'd say, what he's talking about is, is crazy, uh, and we can tell that it's crazy because we saw that people in the 20th century tried something like this in, uh, in communism or in so something like that, sort of breaking down the individuality and the family and civil society and, and locating all loyalty in the state. And so sometimes I think that's a, that's a reaction that students have to, yeah. to reading this. And, and all of that is, is locating the, the oddity of book five in, in someone else or somewhere else, some other society. But it occurred to me that there are parallels of a certain sort to each of the three waves in contemporary America. And I don't mean that these are realizations of Socrates's intention or, or literally what he's describing in, uh, in a very uh, particular way in, books, in book five, um, but maybe like a kind of poor man's version of, of the three waves. Um, so in the, in the first case, uh, the first wave is, as my, one of my students pointed out, uh, this is first wave fem feminism, right? Uh, this is Socrates' version of feminism. Uh, it's the first wave in, in book five, and it's equality between the sexes, um, right? It's a, a reduction of, or a location of the difference between men and women, uh, simply in the fact that, that uh, wi uh, women bear children, whereas men um, uh, mount, as Socrates uh, says. There's that kind of parallel. And so we, uh, we have in the last uh, century, or roughly speaking, uh, come to view men and women as, as more and more equal and as distinct only in the fact that they have uh, different bodies and different anatomies and different functions in, in reproduction. Um, this, the second wave, we haven't gone so far uh, to actually dissolve uh, sort of the family to this extent, we've had radical transformations of, of what we publicly understand to be the family. But we have had something like some of the provisions that, that Socrates sketches in book five of what you have to do when you weaken the family, right? You need, you need daycare and preschool and kindergarten, right? You need, you need other people to be taking care of the children so that women will be, will be free to uh, will be free from children, right? Will be free from uh, caring for children uh, to the same extent or, or uh, with the same quantity of time or something like that. Um, and then the third wave, right, which is the philosopher kings, we don't have philosopher kings for better or for worse. We might be better off if we had actual philosopher kings. Instead, what we have is experts. Uh, and increasingly in the last century in America, and this is just the latest example of this is ongoing. It's, it's the, the invocation of all of the experts to help us sort through the coronavirus yeah. pandemic. Uh, but what we've had is actually a movement away from uh, the American founding principles of rule by consent and every power exercised by the government flows more or less directly from popular consent. It's some, it's, we have given the government these powers and then we have entrusted these individuals to exercise these powers, these enumerated powers in the constitution, we've actually moved away from that in the last century 
towards the idea that, well, the people are ignorant or ignorant at best, bigoted at worst. Um, they might have a kind of Marxist fa false consciousness. Um, they certainly don't know all everything that you need to know to run a modern society, a modern advanced technological society. And so through a proliferation of agencies that exist at the federal government and also at the state level, uh, we're going to bring expertise into, into the administration of things, right? And, and so we are going to give power over, uh, over to bureaucrats and to experts who are going to help guide us through the complexities of modern economics and modern health uh, and, and modern science and bring all of, that, all of that expertise that they have acquired in the academy and through research and so on uh, into, into governance. And so in, in that way, I see at least versions of the three waves of Socrates, Socrates' book five in especially the last century or half century of, of American society and politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you were giving that overview <clears throat> in parallel to the fruits of progressivism, um, I was also thinking of the, um, the various scientific uh, <laughs> manipulations that make it possible for women to be free and to have the same capacities in the military and so forth, such as the pill. I mean, you don't even have mm -hmm. to have the problem anymore of childbearing because you have the pill. And if you should by accident get pregnant, you can do away with your baby. So you can take care of that problem now. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to even worry about it. And um, though you might not have children and women in common, you certainly have various, um, what, the old prohibitions are no longer there <laughs> mm -hmm. because of these advances, so to speak. You don't have shame connected with um, your sexual behavior. It's, it's totally open. Mm -hmm. And um, the marriage as a unity between one man and one woman has long since been undermined by the divorce laws, no-fault divorce, and so forth. And then on the expert policy, you've got this incredible kind of um, conviction that the family really doesn't know how to take care of itself mm -hmm. any more than citizens know how to consent and deliberate. So um, you had milk provided for poor children. You have aid to dependent children. And these go back to Nixon, right? Mm -hmm you have all kinds of programs that make it possible for mothers not to do what they're supposed to do and fathers not to stay with women whom they impregnate. So the state then has a, you know, a major role in providing things that should be provided by responsible uh, parents. And um, the whole idea of course is, I think in, in, in principle, it's, well, it wasn't directly to destroy the family, but in principle, the idea was government can do better both publicly and privately for us, right? The whole idea is that, in fact, we can't think anymore. Talk about the doing away with that Madisonian idea in number 10, that we think differently and therefore we come to be attached to our opinions. We can't even have opinions anymore because the one opinion is that you have to... <laughs> 
me get off on this, so you'll have to shut me up. The one opinion <laughs> is that you have to be diverse. And, you, and if you're not diverse, you're not really being attached to the American principle of equality and rights. So, right. So there's an imposition on people who say, people who say, I think my children should be educated this way. <laughs> and I think it's good that I can not have transgender bathrooms in my college or so forth and so on. Or maybe boys shouldn't be allowed to be girls and compete in sport. So, you know, all those kinds of things make you feel as though, well, you don't have the right opinion. You're not part of unity anymore, right? And th right. this is a kind of odd kind of unity that we've, asked, we've wanted to become, but it's also a kind of tyranny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> tyranny yeah. of majority opinion. Yeah, I, I'm wondering about the the role of the state in, sticking with modern america the role of the state but also the mm -hmm. emphasis on the individual because a lot of the rhetoric yeah. is on right liberation right it's, it's it's women's liberation so that individually women can uh do what they want and have have great careers and be freed from sort of the tyranny of nature and biology and, and so on um and while the state steps in quite a bit in order to facilitate this, it is not typically, or t uh, tell me if you have a different impression, it doesn't seem to me to be for the sake of making us in community with one another. I, right, that it's, it's, a very, it's very individually or individualistically or privately oriented, uh, privately in the sense of kind of the individual on his own, on her own. Uh, as opposed yeah. to what you see in the, so here's actually a, a kind of distinction from the Republic. Uh, in the Republic, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a breaking down of all these communities and then everyone is forged into this uh, awesome, awful whole, <laughs> single unity, right, of, of the city. Whereas yeah, what we have is a kind of a reduction of, uh, a, a, a reduction of or dissolving of the family and those kinds of associations. And then what, what we're left with is, is individuals who then make their own choices and form their own temporary associations as they, as they like, but remain kind of atomized from one another, except when they do what you were referring to, which is they join in the big movement, the historical movement for progress of having the right opinions and advancing the right opinions uh, as, as yeah. far as possible. Yeah, it's a strange kind of insistence on diversity that makes us all monolithically think alike. And, mm -hmm. and also makes it very hard for those who want to have uh, behavior and cultural norms that are enforced by the public, it makes it very hard. Because yeah. then you isolate yourself as families in order to do what you can to raise good children. Uh, you know, this kind of Benedict option thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then you don't feel as though you either can impact or change or su sufficiently bring about a kind of unity in the good. And because what's missing here really is, not, is what's not missing in Plato, is what he's really aiming at is the unity in the good. That's what he's aiming at. And this is a step along the way, book five. Mm. We're not interested in a unity in the good and this, this, expert 
progressive world that you've described. That's, that's not where it's aiming at, right? It doesn't have a notion of the good, of anything transcendent. It's, mm -hmm. it's really at a very low level. Um, I don't know what you would call that low level, the reduction of rights to desires, <laughs> whatever, whatever yeah. our desires might be, and confuse our desires with rights. Um, I, I think you're, you're just now starting to answer what was my next question, which is, what would you say to someone who heard our discussion and said, okay, you've got, you've got Socrates and Plato on one side, and you've got Madison and the American founding on the other side, and what we have today in America is kind of the, the true heir to Plato, the true, consider, the true institutionalization or realization of book five of the Republic. What, what would you say to such a person who, who sort of took that away from what we've said so far? Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to continue, wouldn't I, on the, on the tact of the whole aim of this part of the discussion in book five is toward the good, is to move Glaucon toward the good, is to move the dialogue in that direction where, where you see the good as the cause of anything that is uh, admirable, truth or beauty all the yeah so to get to the good is to say there's a unifying principle in in the realm of being right is mm -hmm. it, it, it it unifies the source it, it's the unifying principle in the realm of being and in the realm of becoming in all the realm of pleasures of the of the lower kind or even fame of the demonic kind all those others are um, deviant to the extent that they take us away from from the good and that's that's the unified image that he'd like um the city to reflect and i mean it's more like a dream it's more like a sketch a kind of painting in order to get at this deeper teaching which is not about the women and children in common <laughs> and bodies and not meaning anything but it's really about mind seeking wisdom right the good as the source of understanding. And that kind of choice of a way of life is going to be uh, very, very, very rare. But mm -hmm. to, have it as, to have it as an image is to already correct the city for many of its excesses. To have the young men thinking about it, right, mm -hmm. is already, as the Athenians, thought about Socrates to do damage to the conventional opinions in, in, in the city, right? It already turns your focus away from mere um, riches and rep reputation, right, and honors to the good of the soul. What's the right order of my soul? Man, if we had that orientation, if that's what our experts were thinking about, <laughs> mm -hmm. America could, could have a much deeper unity than a unity of diversity it's just it's an oxymoron <laughs> you know we we excel yeah. our our regime excels at producing the goods of the body uh right yeah. and and mm -hmm. to toleration as well and a kind mm -hmm. of yeah avoidance of conflict which is which is a, a good right it's a it's a kind of peace it may not be the full the fullness of peace it certainly isn't the fullness of peace um, but, but, but that, and, and, and what's required by that is a kind of distraction, or at least the way that it's currently manifested is this distraction from higher questions, 
right? And distraction yeah. from uh, a kind of spiritual or, or intellectual unity that, that we might achieve and that Plato is, is pointing us to, towards. Um, I think yeah. yep. your, these comments on the good are uh, as good a, a place to end as any. Um, so I, okay. I'd like to thank you so much for joining, uh, for joining me. It's, it's been great to talk to you about, about Publius and Plato. Thank you for letting me think in another direction than I have about book five. I'll, I'll remember it if I ever get a chance to teach it again, Dr. Papadopoulos. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Great. <laughs> mm -hmm.